Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemarie Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The National Geographic, The Community Voice, Blavity News, Ebony, The Grio, and Scape, and News One. Today is the conclusion of the article titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. I hire a genealogist, Renate Yarborough Sanders, Y-A-R-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, who specializes in African ancestry research, and ask whether she can help me trace my family back to a slave ship. Yarborough Sanders says she will try to find out what she can about my earliest known ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, Jack Roberts, who was born enslaved in 1837. Learning about Africatown has made me see this family history newly. The most notable marker honors Harriet Jacobs, a local woman who escaped slavery via the Maritime Underground Railroad. Jacobs went on to write one of the few known slave narratives, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, in 1861, and became a revered abolitionist. The Edenton historical interpreter, Charles Boyette, B-O-Y, E T T E tells me that the Maritime Underground Railroad was a hidden network of connections and safe houses that allowed enslaved people to seek their freedom along the waterways. He said that Edenton was part of a network for thousands who escaped to the north with the help of sailors, dock workers, fishermen, both free and enslaved and others who made their living off the water and waterfront. I had never heard of the Maritime Underground Railroad. Yarborough Sanders, the genealogist, calls on Zoom. She has results. First, it turns out Jack bought even more land than my grandfather, at least 174 acres in total. Maybe it's in the family because I managed to buy three homes by the time I was 31. Second, he was a delegate to the 1865 Freeman's Convention in Raleigh, a statewide assembly that took place after the end of the Civil War to consider aspirations and goals for the formerly enslaved. That resonates. He tried to be part of the solution, despite the odds against him. Finally, there was evidence that Jack fought in the Civil War in the United States Colored Troops, 2nd Regiment, Company B. Yarborough Sanders smiles at me. If that's your ancestor, it's a huge, big deal. She also tells me with laughter that he may have owned a speakeasy. I feel a stirring of pride. I am not a descendant of sad people, of victims, of faceless people. Jack has become real to me. Not perfect, just real. As has Edenton. 
Turns out, I am in Edenton on June 19th, 2021. Juneteenth, the day the federal government just made an official holiday to celebrate the freedom of those who were enslaved. Oh, how the universe works. As Edenton celebrates all out with a soulful band, vendors, and food stalls right at the river, people of different races are communing. That evening, there's a vigil at the Confederate monument to get rid of the negative energy of plantation culture and bring in positive vibrations. Curious eyes follow me as I walk around with all my recording equipment. People ask who I am and who my people are. And now I can say, I am of Jack Roberts' clan. Jack begot John H. Who begot John A? Who begot Lula? Who begot me? And there is recognition, laughter, stories from the past of my mom, my Aunt Myrtle, my Uncle George, my Uncle Sonny. Carol Anthony, a stranger passing by upon hearing my name, tells me she's married to my Uncle Teeny's stepson. How did I not know this place? Many African cultures believe that the ancestors never die, never lose their connection with the living, that their energy is still there, supporting us, pushing us, loving us. What if, I think, all African Americans could look back and claim their past, see their ancestors fully, know their whole story? Would that change everything? I am not a scientist or a historian. I am a storyteller. And now I can see that the stories we find as we discover ourselves don't just belong to us as individuals. They also belong to the communities of which we are a part. And if those groups are brave, they can use these stories to expand the possibility of who we might all become together. This history, our history, has sad notes. Like any good love story, it has pain and hurt that tug at the heart and make it sore. I thought this search for slave ships might be hard. I thought I would need hands holding mine rubbing my back, consoling my tears and my heartache. Instead, I found strength and power and adventure and camaraderie. I found laughter, love, life, kinship. I found something strong and necessary to root and ground me. This article is titled, This is the last segment of the article titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships led this diver on an extraordinary journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. The next article is titled, Explainer, BA2 Variant Takes Over. What's Known About It? By the Community Voice, April 11th, 2022. In the latest battle of the coronavirus mutants, an extra contagious version of Omicron has taken over the world. The coronavirus version, known as BA2, is now dominant in at least 68 countries, including the United States. The World Health Organization says it makes up 
about 94% of sequenced Omicron cases submitted to an international coronavirus database in the most recent week. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it was responsible for 72% of the new U.S. infections last week. Dr. Wesley Long, a pathologist at Houston Methodist in Texas, said he's seen BA2 quickly become dominant in his medical system. At the end of last week, the variant was responsible for more than three-quarter cases in Houston Methodist hospitals. Less than two weeks earlier, 1% to 3% of cases were caused by BA2. It's not terribly surprising because it is more contagious than the original Omicron, Long said. As the variant advances, scientists are learning more about it, but they still don't know exactly how it will affect the trajectory of the pandemic. What's known? BA2 has lots of mutations. It's been dubbed Stealth Omicron because it lacks a genetic quirk of the original Omicron that allowed health officials to rapidly differentiate it from the Delta variant using a certain PCR test. One of the reasons BA2 has gained ground, scientists said, is that it's about 30% more contagious than the original Omicron. In rare cases, research shows it can sicken people even if they've already had an Omicron infection, although it doesn't seem to cause more severe disease. Vaccines appear equally effective against both types of Omicron. For both vaccination plus a booster offers strong protection against severe illness and death. Has the variant pushed up cases? Coronavirus cases rose in parts of Europe and Asia when BA2 became dominant and some scientists are concerned that the variant could also push up cases across the U.S. Besides being more contagious, it's spreading at a time when governments are relaxing restrictions designed to control COVID-19. Also, people are taking off their masks and getting back to activities such as traveling, eating indoors at restaurants, and attending crowded events. At this point, overall coronavirus cases in the U.S. are still on the decline. But there have been upticks in some places, including New York, Arizona, and Illinois. Health officials have also noted that case counts are getting more unreliable because of the wide availability of home tests and the fact some people are no longer getting tested. We are entering a phase where increasing cases or waves may be very regional and it may depend on a lot of vaccination levels in the community. And not just vaccination levels, but timing of the vaccinations, Long said. How long ago were they? Did people get boosters? Because we know the immunity to the vaccine wanes a little bit over time. Long said he feels very certain that cases will eventually go back up in the U.S., whether that's because of BA2 or some future variant. If it's BA2, he said, it may be more of a wave or a speed bump 
than a surge. For now, COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths are still trending down nationally. Are there any other variants to be concerned about? As the coronavirus continues to evolve, the WHO is tracking other mutants, including hybrids known as recombinants. These include combinations of Delta and Omicron and hybrids of BA2 and the original Omicron, also known as BA1. One recombinant that health authorities are tracking closely is BA1-BA2 hybrid called XE, which was first detected in the United Kingdom in January. About 600 cases have been reported, and scientists believe it may be about 10% more contagious than BA2. What should people do? The advice from experts remain the same. Take precautions to avoid getting COVID-19. The virus is still out there circulating, Long said. Vaccination is still your best defense. Get the shots if you haven't already, he said, and get the second booster if you're eligible because you are 50 or older or have a compromised immune system. If cases start going up in your community, think about assessing your risk level, Long said. If you stop masking and stopped worrying about distancing and things, that's the time to reinstitute those protective measures. This article is titled, Explainer BA2 Variant Takes Over. What's Known About It? By the Community Voice, April 11th, 2022. The next article is also from the Community Voice titled, New Partnership to Help Coin the Legacy of the Negro Leagues, April 11, 2022. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, NLBM, announced a partnership with the First Business Bank to help make the U.S. Mint Negro League's coins program as successful as possible. The coins are the first ever mint coins commemorating the centennial of Negro Leagues baseball and honoring the rich history of the Negro Leagues. First Business Bank is to become the official bank of the coin program and will help the NLBM on a marketing strategy to encourage consumers to purchase the collectible coins that were released for sale in January. The bank will also manage any profits generated by the program. After the U.S. Treasury has recouped expenses for designing and minting the coins, funds will be distributed to the NLBM. The program could yield as much as $6 million if all 850,000 coins 50,000 gold, 400,000 silver, and 400,000 clad are sold. The Negro League's Baseball Centennial Commemorative Coin Act is one of the most important initiatives in museum history. And while we are ecstatic to have gained the issuance of the coins, the true success comes with our ability to realize as much of the revenue potential as possible, said Bob Kendrick, NLBM president. I'm extremely confident that our partnership with First Business Bank 
and their tremendous connections to the business community will help us accomplish that goal. The Mint produces $5 gold coins, $1 silver coins, and half-dollar clad coins as part of the program. The Mint accepts orders at catalog.usmint.gov forward slash. The legacy and history maintained by the NLBM is very important to preserve, and we are honored to help promote this program to benefit their efforts and ensure their financial wellness in the years to come. Rob Barker, First Business Bank's President of Kansas City Metro Market. First Business Bank will also be involved in planning various NLBM programs and events, including the 2022 Buck O'Neill Golf Classic, which will take place August 16th at Shoal Creek Golf Course. This article is titled, New Partnership to Help Coin the Legacy of the Negro Leagues by the Community Voice Staff, April 11th, 2022. Next is a special article titled, The Forgotten Story of Black Soldiers and the Red Ball Express During World War II published by The Conversation, April 7, 2022. Governor Dwight D. Eisenhower had a problem. In June 1944, Allied forces had landed on Normandy Beach in France and were moving east toward Nazi Germany at a clip of sometimes 75 miles, which is 121 kilometers per day. With most of the French rail system in ruins, the Allies had to find a way to transport supplies to advancing soldiers. Our spearheads were moving swiftly, Eisenhower later recalled. The supply service had to catch these with loaded trucks. Every mile doubled the difficulty because the supply truck had always to make a two-way run to the beaches and back in order to deliver another load to the marching troops. The solution of this logistics problem was the creation of the Red Ball Express, a massive fleet of nearly 6,000 two-and-a-half-ton General Motors cargo trucks. The term Red Ball came from a railway tradition where railmen marked priority cars with a red dot. From August through November 1944, 23,000 American truck drivers and cargo loaders, 70% of whom were black, moved more than 400,000 tons of ammunition, gasoline, medical supplies, and rations to battlefronts in France, Belgium, and Germany. These Red Ball Express trucks and the black men who drove and loaded them made the U.S. Army the most mobile and mechanized force in the war. They also demonstrated what military planners have long understood. Logistics shape what is possible on the fields of battle. That's a point well known in today's war in Ukraine. As Russian invasion stretches into its second month, logistics have been an important factor. Supplying the front lines. The Red Ball Express 
gave the Allies a strategic advantage over the German infantry divisions, which were overly reliant on rail, wagon trains, and horses to move troops and supplies. A typical German division during the same period had nearly 10 times as many horses as motor vehicles and ran on oats just as much as oil. This limited the range of the vaunted Blitzkrieg or lightning attacks because German tanks and motorized units could not move far ahead of their infantry divisions and supplies. During day and night, the Red Ball truckers earned a reputation as tireless and fearless troops. They steered their loud, rough-driving trucks down pitch-black country roads and through narrow lanes in French towns. They drove fast and adopted the French phrase, Tout de suite, immediately, right now, as their motto. General George S. Patton wanted us to eat, sleep, and drive, but mostly drive, one trucker recalled. James Rockard, R-O-O-K-A-R-D, a 19-year-old truck driver from Maple Heights, Ohio, saw trucks get blown up and feared for his life. There were dead bodies and dead horses on the highways after bombs dropped, he said. I was scared, but I did my job, hoping for the best. Being young and about 4,000 miles away from home, anybody would be scared. Patton concluded that the two-and-a-half truck is our most valuable weapon, and Colonel John D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander's son, argued that without the Red Ball truck drivers, the advance across France could not have been made. Fighting Nazis and Racism The Red Ball Express was a microcosm of the larger black American experience during World War II. Prompted by the Pittsburgh Courier, an influential black newspaper at the time, black Americans rallied behind the Double V campaign during the war, which aimed to secure victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home. Many soldiers saw their service as a way to demonstrate the capabilities of their race. The army assigned black troops almost exclusively to service and supply roles because military leaders believed they lacked the intelligence, courage, and skill needed to fight in combat units. Despite the racism they encountered during training and deployment, black troops served bravely in every theater of World War II, patriotism, and a willingness to fight as two characteristics by which manhood and citizenship were defined. The boundaries between combat roles and service roles also blurred in war zones. Black truck drivers often had to fight their way through enemy pockets and sometimes required armored escorts to get valuable cargo to the front. Many of the white American soldiers who relied on supplies delivered by the Red Ball Express recognized the driver's valor at the time. An armored division commander credits the Red Ball drivers with allowing tankers to refuel and rearm while fighting. The black drivers delivered gas under constant fire, he said. Damned if I'd want their job, 
they have what it takes. The 5th Armored Division tank driver said if it wasn't for the red ball, we couldn't have moved. They all were black drivers and they delivered in the heat of combat. We'd be in our tanks praying for them to come up. The forgotten story of black soldiers and the Red Ball Express during World War II. Written by editors from The Conversation, April 7, 2022. The next article is titled, A Promise Fulfilled, Black Women React to Katanji Brown Jackson's Historic Supreme Court Confirmation. Written by J.K. Turner and Scape, April 8, 2022. On Thursday, President Joe Biden fulfilled his campaign promise to nominate a Black woman to the Supreme Court when Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed by the Senate to be an associate justice on the highest court in the land. Jackson is a former clerk for justice, Stephen Breyer, a former federal public defender and a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And most importantly, the Harvard grad is the first black woman to be confirmed to the Supreme Court in its 233-year history. To examine this moment and possible futures that could follow, Anscape spoke to black women across every section of the law, from students and professors to corporate attorneys and scholars, to get their taste on what this historic confirmation meant to them personally and to the legal profession more broadly. It's refreshing, despite all she had to endure to get here, said Tiana Briscoe, B-R-I-S-C-O, a Juris Doctor candidate at the Howard University School of Law. It has made me think about what all is to come in my lifetime. I'm only 24, and I just can't imagine what all I may witness in my lifetime, hopefully even a Black president. Briscoe hopes Jackson's confirmation is just the beginning of Biden's commitment to make the federal bench more diverse. I hope that President Biden doesn't feel like he's checked this box or delivered on this promise and therefore doesn't have to continue to diversify the field and nominate other black women in the lower federal courts. I hope that state leaders see this and do the same. Deborah Archer, the first black president of the American Civil Liberties Union and a professor of clinical law at NYU School of Law, put the historic moment into perspective. This shatters the ultimate glass ceiling in the legal profession, and it is an incredibly meaningful moment in our history. Shortly after emancipation in Dred Scott v. Sanford, the U.S. Supreme Court said that Black people had no rights, which white people were bound to respect. And now a Black woman will sit on that court. Oni Holly Brown, the Vice President, Deputy General Counsel, Chief Litigation Officer for Aviana Healthcare in Atlanta, called the moment thrilling. Judge Jackson's confirmation 
is thrilling for me as a Black woman in the legal profession, and I feel a deep sense of pride in her accomplishment. Her appointment to the highest court in the land is truly the culmination of our ancestors' wildest dreams. Charlita Mays, the Vice President and Senior Legal Counsel for Fidelity Investments, said she is heartened by Jackson's achievement. My heart is full that her qualifications are unassailable, but her confirmation was in no way assured only underscores the importance of this appointment. She persisted, and the whole country will be the beneficiaries. This is yet another step toward this country accepting the value of Black women. I am overjoyed for soon-to-be Justice Jackson and pray for her continued success. Yvonne Miller, an associate at, at Charleston, Bredehoft, Cohen, Brown, and Nadelhaft, PC in Reston, Virginia, agreed with Biden that this appointment is past due. The historical nomination and confirmation of the Honorable Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court signals to me that the legal and judicial contributions that Black women have been making to this country are finally being seen and recognized generations later. Black women have been studying and practicing law in this country since Charlotte Ray in 1872. Miller also highlighted the meaning of Jackson's confirmation to Black women across the U.S. As of today, all 20 million-plus Black women can actually say that they have representation on the highest court in the land. I hate that it took us this long to get here, but I am extremely grateful and proud to be witnessing it. While KBJ's presence on the court may not change its ideology, it will definitely open the door to many other Black women attorneys who are qualified and ready to lead from the bench. Educators at law schools across the country are eager to help mold the next generation of Black women in law. Melinda Price, M-E-L-Y-N-D-A, a law professor at the University of Kentucky, J. David Rosenberg College of Law, expressed pride in overcoming past battles. I, like Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, am among the generation of Black women who are direct beneficiaries of the hard-won gains of the civil rights movement. Growing up, the image of Thurgood Marshall loomed large because of his work as a lawyer and then as a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. We entered law school with this image of how the law could be used to advance justice, but it didn't help us to understand how exactly we fit as Black women in the law. Price expressed her excitement for the future of the legal profession and the direction of the Supreme Court. From this day forward, every young person who enters law school will have an image of a Black woman as what it means to embody the highest legal authority of this nation. However, it goes beyond image. We know that as various groups have made it to the Supreme Court, the considerations of factors that are important to their communities have also made their way to the court. 
the meaning of justice and law in this country will only be more expansive by having such a qualified black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Despite her pride, Victoria Griffin, a political science student at North Carolina AT&T State University and 2022-23 president-elect for the NC AT&T chapter of the National Black Law Students Association, felt stung by the ugly confirmation hearing and is skeptical of the positive effects that Jackson's ascension might portend. Truthfully, I do not think this means much for the future of diversity of law, she said. Judge Jackson will be the most qualified to sit on the current court and yet was still hurled insults and demeaning questions throughout her hearing, she continued. While having Judge Jackson on the court will no doubt spark hope for other black women who desire to do similar things, it does not change the reality. I would love to say this confirmation will open more doors, but unfortunately, regardless of political affiliation, our Senate remains a white majority. Therefore, blackness in law and politics is still a threat to their livelihood, well-being, and comfort. I am optimistic, however, that there will be more black women to follow in the future. Since 1940, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, LDF, has advocated for civil and human rights for disenfranchised people. The LDF's president and director counsel, Janai Nelson, said of the historic vote, when you consider the caste that black women have been forced to occupy in this country since its inception, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's historic nomination to the Supreme Court is nothing short of extraordinary. And while the shattering of this particular glass ceiling is long awaited and overdue, this is, most of all, a moment of jubilation, a triumph for justice, a momentous step forward for our democracy. Nelson went on to discuss the important role the LDF has played in the emergence of Black legal minds. As the organization that produced the first Black associate justice and the first Black woman federal judge, this moment is a powerful extension of LDF's legacy. I hope that the next generation of Black men and women lawyers see their potential as limitless because of these ever-expanding models of excellence and achievement. This article is titled, A Promise Fulfilled, Black Women React to Ketanji Brown Jackson's Historic Supreme Court Confirmation, written by J.K. Turner and Scape, April 8, 2022. The next article is titled, Biden's Inflation Speech, at HBCU is an opportunity to address canceling student debt by Donovan Dooley, News One, April 14th, 2022. President Joe Biden's Thursday address to the nation from one of the most prominent HBCUs in the country was expected to detail his plan 
to fight the current inflation issues the country is facing. The scene at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro will paint an interesting picture since black students in higher education are some of the most heavily impacted individuals by the inflation crisis. A huge reason for that is because of the higher likelihood for black students to be saddled with student loan debt. According to the Education Data Initiative, black and African-American college graduates owe an average of $25,000 more in student loan debt than white college graduates. And with everything becoming more expensive, it'll be even harder for graduates to find the money to pay off these loans monthly. Since the pandemic began, the Trump administration and Biden administration have continued to extend the pause on student loan payments. And new reports indicate that Biden is considering student debt forgiveness for borrowers. The president is going to look at what we should do on student debt before the pause expires, or he'll extend the pause, said White House Chief of Staff Ronald Klain, K-L-A-I-N, in an interview hosted by Pod Save America. Whether or not there is some executive action on student debt forgiveness when the payments resume is a decision we're going to take before the payments resume. Biden and his administration have received intense criticism from younger supporters in regards to his efforts to alleviate this burden on many Americans. In the wake of the pandemic, many HBCUs have even stepped up to the plate to lessen the financial responsibility on their students. Some institutions have even waived fees and outstanding balances for students tied to the school that could prohibit them from graduating. Hampton University announced last week that there will be no increase in tuition, fees, and room and board for the 2022 and 2023 academic year. In addition, all outstanding student account balances for the spring 2022 semester will be wiped clean. In keeping with the university's effort to help our students, there will be no increase in tuition, fees, room, and board for the 2022 and 2023 academic year, said President of Hampton University, Dr. William Harvey, in a statement from the school. In addition, on behalf of the university, I am pleased to announce that all outstanding balances for the spring 2022 semester will be erased. We hope that this action will continue to assist our students and their families at our home by the sea. A few schools were likely able to do this because of the influx of funding from the COVID relief plans enacted by the Biden administration. HBCUs have received $2.7 billion in funding from Biden's American Rescue Plan in the last year. While Biden has been intentional in attempting to fund HBCUs, which play a huge role in helping Black people achieve financial freedom, canceling student debt undeniably create an even bigger impact economically for Black people especially in the midst of inflation rates this high. Whether the president's speech at North Carolina A&T 
will move the conversation forward about canceling student loan debt remains to be seen. But Biden's potential commitment to forgiving this debt could play a significant role in diminishing racial and financial burdens for millions of Black people in this country. This article was titled, Biden's Inflation Speech at HBCU is an Opportunity to Address Canceling Student Debt, written by Donovan Dooley, News 1, April 14, 2022. Next, a special article titled, The History of Mother's Day in the United States, written by Catherine Boekman and Heidi Stonehill, B-O-E-C-K-M-A-N-N, The Almanac, April 5th, 2022. The real history of Mother's Day in the United States might surprise you. Three women who championed efforts toward better health, welfare, peace, and love contributed to the day we all celebrate on the second Sunday in May each year. The Mother's Day holiday in the United States wasn't born out of a desire to simply treat mothers to a day off or to buy them gifts. It essentially began as a women's movement to better the lives of other Americans. The creation of a National Mother's Day is primarily attributed to three women, Anne Reeves Jarvis, J-A-R-V-I-S, Julia Ward Howe, H-O-W-E, and Anne's daughter, Anne M. Jarvis. Anne Reeves Jarvis. Known as Mother Jarvis, Anne Reeves Jarvis was a young Appalachian homemaker who taught Sunday school lessons. She was a lifelong activist who, in the mid-1800s, had organized Mother's Day work clubs in West Virginia to combat unsanitary living conditions and teach young mothers how to safely care for their children. During the Civil War, Mother Jarvis had also organized women's brigades, encouraging women to help without regard for which side their men had chosen. After the war, she proposed a Mother's Friendship Day to promote peace between former Union and Confederate families. I hope and pray that someone sometime will found a Memorial Mother's Day commemorating her for the matchless service she renders to humanity in every field of life, Anne Jarvis once said. She's entitled to it. Julia Ward Howe. Julia Ward Howe was a famous poet and reformer. During the Civil War, she volunteered for the U.S. Sanitary Commission, helping them provide hygienic environments for hospitals and ensure sanitary conditions during the care of sick and wounded soldiers. In 1861, she authored the famous Civil War Anthem, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was first published in February 1862. Around 1870, Julia Ward Howe called for a Mother's Day of Peace, dedicated to the celebration of peace and the eradication of war. As expressed in what is called her Mother's Day Proclamation from 1870, Howe felt that mothers should gather to prevent the cruelty of war, and the waste of life since mothers of mankind alone bear and know the cost. 
Howe's version of Mother's Day was held in Boston and other locations for about 30 years, but died a quick death in the years preceding World War I. Nothing new happened in this department until 1907, when a Miss Anna M. Jarvis of Philadelphia took up the banner. Anne M. Jarvis. After her mother, Anne Reeves Jarvis, died in 1905, Miss Anna Jarvis from Philadelphia memorialized her mother's life and started campaigning for a national day to honor all mothers. She bombarded public figures and various civic organizations with telegrams, letters, and in-person discussions. She addressed groups, large and small. At her own expense, she wrote, printed, and distributed booklets extolling her idea. In May of 1907, Anna memorialized her mother's lifelong activism with a memorial service held at the Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia, where Anna's mother had taught. The following year, on May 10th, a Mother's Day service was held at that same church to acknowledge all mothers. Thus was born the idea that the second Sunday in May be set aside to honor every mother, whether living or deceased. Her efforts came to the attention of the mayor of Philadelphia, who proclaimed a local Mother's Day. From the local level, she went on to Washington, D.C. The politicians there knew a good thing when they saw it and were quick to lend verbal support. While West Virginia was the first state to officially adopt the holiday, others followed suit. Proclamation of the day by the various states, led by Representative J. Thomas Heflin, H-E-F-L-I-N, of Alabama, and Senator Morris Shepard of Texas, to present a joint resolution to Congress that Mother's Day be observed nationwide. The resolution was passed by both houses. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a bill designating the second Sunday in May as a legal holiday to be called Mother's Day, dedicated to the best mother in the world, your mother. For the first few years, the day was observed as a legal holiday, but in absolute simplicity and reverence, church services were held in honor of all mothers, living and dead. According to many sources, Anne simply wanted to honor her mother and the work she had done, and claimed that her mother was the originator of the real Mother's Day. She was dismayed to see Mother's Day become more commercialized with the sending of cards and gifts and used as a way to promote other causes. Sadly, Anna spent the final years of her life trying to abolish the very holiday that she had helped establish. Mother's Day endures and evolves, just as Mother's Day was the creation of multiple women, the modern Mother's Day celebrates the various roles of mothers today. We commemorate the many ways mothers have fought to better the lives of their children, from social welfare to nonviolence. We also honor the way mothers have raised and nurtured their children with love and courage. This article is titled, The History of Mother's Day in the United States written by Catherine Boakman and Heidi Stonehill 
The Almanac, April 5th, 2022. The next article is titled, 10 Black Moms in History Whom We Love, written by Malin Carter Gilkey, Matter Mia, Maya Angelou, poet and activist. Before earning the Presidential Medal of Freedom and gracing the world with her breathtaking poetry, Maya Angelou dropped out of high school at 14 and became the first black woman cable car conductor in San Francisco. She would later return and graduate, gaining the first of many degrees. A single mother to her son Guy when she was 17, Angelo supported them by working as a waitress and a cook while still finding time to stoke her creative passions. She eventually became an award-winning writer, musician, actress, dancer, director, journalist, political activist, and educator. Dr. Mamie Clayton, librarian, collector, and historian. Dr. Mamie Clayton believed children should know that Black people have done great things, and she dedicated 40 years of her life to make it so. She accumulated a vast collection of Black literature, documents, photographs, films, books, and memorabilia that was shared first as a bookstore and later as a library out of her home and her garage. This highly respected collection originated from garage sales and used bookstore finds and grew to become a treasured resource for scholars and communities in Los Angeles and abroad. Also a wife and mother of three sons, Avery, Lloyd, and Renee, Clayton served the community with original programming, such as Black Film Festivals, to share her compiled work. As the collection outgrew her home, her eldest son, Avery, became the executive director of the Mamie A. Clayton Library and Museum, MCLM, and he secured a new home for the collection in the former Culver City Courthouse shortly before her death in 2006. Ruby D actor, screen, songwriter, and activist. The talented Ruby Dee was best known as an award-winning actress of stage and screen alongside her husband, the great Ozzie Davis. But her roles went beyond acting. She was also an accomplished screen and songwriter. Friends with both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, Ruby Dee and her husband were active participants in the civil rights movement. Dee was also mother to their son, Guy, who grew up in the family business and eventually composed music with his mother for the family musical, Take It From the Top, which Davis directed and Dee wrote. Josephine Baker, performer, war hero, and activist. Josephine Baker is known around the world for her comedic dancing, particularly her famous banana routine. But Baker was much more than a performer. After facing racism in the States, she found more acceptance and an extremely successful career in Paris. When she returned to the States many years later, she actively fought against discrimination, earning her a day of recognition by the NAACP. In addition to being an activist, she was a war hero for the French army during World War II. Baker was also the adoptive mother of 12 children, which she called the Rainbow Tribe,
because of her children's diverse ethnic and religious backgrounds to prove people could coexist no matter their origins. Nina Simone, singer and activist. There is no single genre of music or style of singing that can capture Nina Simone's multidimensional career and dynamic contribution. With a background in classical and religious music that started at the early age of three, Simone was accepted into Juilliard to study classical piano. She began a career as a singer and performed covers and originals from jazz, blues, spirituals, pop, soul, and folk music. Some of her most notable songs were civil rights songs, such as Young, Gifted, and Black, and Mississippi, Goddamn, which was an original song in memory of the Birmingham, Alabama church bombing and the murder of civil rights leader Medgar Evers. This song marked a turning point in her career and was an anthem in its time. In addition to her remarkable career, Simone had a daughter, Lisa Simone Kelly, a talented singer in her own right. Dr. Shirley Jackson, physicist, educator, and college president. Dr. Shirley Jackson may not be a household name, but her work has had a major effect on the world of physics and technology for more than 40 years. Dr. Jackson has the honor of being the first African-American woman to receive her PhD from Massachusetts Institute of Technology in theoretical solid state physics. Her research has contributed to companies such as Bell Telephone and AT&T Bell Laboratories. She has also won numerous awards, taught at prestigious universities, served on several boards, and her accomplishments don't end there. She is also the president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and has a son, Alan, with her physicist husband, Dr. Morris A. Washington. Harriet Tubman, freedom fighter, abolitionist, spy, and war hero. Harriet Tubman's name is synonymous with the Underground Railroad, but Tubman's other contributions are a testament to an awe-inspiring force that she was. Her resume includes working for the Union Army as a cook, nurse, scout, and spy. She led the Combahee River Raid in South Carolina, which resulted in the liberation of over 700 slaves and made her the first woman to lead a military expedition. Her accomplishments also included adopting an infant girl named Gertie with her second husband, Nelson Davis. Madam C.J. Walker, entrepreneur and civil rights activist. Before she was known as Madam C.J. Walker, Sarah Breedlove was the first freeborn in her family. A widow, Sarah earned $1.50 a day as a washerwoman to send her daughter, Aaliyah, to school while she attended night school. After remarrying and building her hair care empire, Madam C.J. Walker became the first American woman to become a self-made millionaire, as well as a philanthropist and an activist. Her daughter eventually joined her mother's business and is recognized in her own right as an important contributor to the Harlem Renaissance. Yvonne Braithwaite Burke. Yvonne Braithwaite Burke, 
Congresswoman. Being a black female Congresswoman speaking against racism in the 1970s is definitely an achievement, but serving in office as a mother was even more impressive back then. Representative Yvonne Braithwaite Burke was mother to her stepdaughter, Christine, and became most recognized as the first woman to serve in Congress while expecting a child. She became the first member of Congress to receive maternity leave after the birth of her second daughter, Autumn, in 1973. Frances M. Beale, B-E-A-L, activist, feminist, and writer. Writer, feminist, peace advocate, internationalist, and political organizer, Frances M. Beale has had so many titles in her life. Beale has dedicated the majority of her 75 years to fighting for liberation and equality. The daughter of a Jewish mother and an African-American father, Beale had an early understanding of racism and discrimination that greatly influenced her. With experiences and leadership roles in several, in several civil rights organizations, as well as African liberation, feminist, and peace movements, Beale critiqued the multiple oppressions faced by Black women in these movements in her noteworthy pamphlet, Double Jeopardy, to be Black and Female. She continued an active political life, and she and her husband welcomed two daughters while living in Paris. Although she's officially retired, Beale volunteers with various organizations in the Bay Area. This article was titled, 10 Black Moms in History Whom We Love by Melan Carter Gilkey, Matter Mia, an online blog, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Anque. Thanks for joining me.